to college for graphic design uh, originally because I love computers, I love designing things, and that's why I love social media. So I got into that first, and I was about a year and a half into graphic design, and I was still working in restaurants, and I'm like, I just, it just didn't feel right. So I went to culinary school at Kendall College, and I started working at a restaurant, and when I was in school, I was working at a restaurant at night, a bar late night, and a bakery super early in the morning. And then I would go to school in the middle of the day. So I was sleeping three hours a night. From City Spoon, this is Fired Up, a show that highlights the best chefs, restaurateurs, eateries, and everything in between that Chicago has to offer. I'm Dapper Kalawale, and on the show today, we bring to you the story of how Michael Ponzio talked his way into being the executive chef of one of the top-ranked city clubs in the country. Let's get fired up. There's a saying that says you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. Well, I guess I've done just that. Michael grew up in Elmwood Park in Chicago, a predominantly Italian community at that time. At a young age of 11 years old, he started working at his uncle's restaurant, bossing tables, washing dishes, and making salads. Influenced by his nonna, Italian for grandma, he was inspired to go into culinary arts not before taking a detour through graphics design. Anyways, soon after he graduated from Kendall College, he got hired as the sous chef at the only four-star Italian restaurant in Chicago at that time. But let's start at the beginning. His work ethics was influenced by his Nona, and because of that, he was able to accomplish so much more at an early age. I mean, I think every chef's story starts with their grandmother. Uh, I think everyone you talk about, it, it all goes back to grandma or mom. Um, I grew up in Elmwood Park, a very Italian community at the time. By the time I was 11, I was working at my uncle's restaurant, busting tables and, and washing dishes and making salads. Um, I was kind of born into the industry and, and the rest of my family wasn't. It was just what I kind of shifted towards naturally. Um, and uh, I started cooking at a young age with my Nona. And every single day, you know, when she moved in with us, every morning she would wake me up. And it did, I could have been out till five in the morning. By seven, she's waking me up and I'm peeling garlic. So, you know, I talk about a rough teenage years. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just, she was just had such an amazing touch about her where everything she touched was delicious. And, you know, one day I was trying to learn from her and this was when I was in culinary school and, you know, she's just handful of this handful of that looking at it, no thermometers, no measuring spoons, nothing. And I'm trying to get the recipes and I couldn't get my head around how she was doing that. And then I just realized it was, she was just cooking from the heart, you know, wow. going through years of tradition and years of emotions and things like that. And, and that's what ended up making what she did so incredible. And once I kind of stopped that whole mentality of, measuring spoon, measuring cup, and start actually cooking, you know, kind of from the inside with a little bit of soul, it really took it to a whole new level. It's interesting you talk about cooking from the heart, cooking from the soul. Um, the best, the best of, of human nature comes from the inside out. A hundred percent. You know, and you just highlighted that. It's like once you, you walked away from that mental, uh, the scientific, I got to measure this, I got to measure that. And you're cooking from the heart. It just opened up a whole, a whole new world for you. Oh, for sure. Even something like baking, which baking is so scientific, 
But if you just approach it strictly from science, you're never going to have as amazing a result as you will going into an old school bakery. Um, you know, it's like pizza, for example. I can attack a pizza dough extremely scientifically, but there's a guy in Arizona who makes his pizza from scratch by hand every day, and it's by far 10 times better than what I make. So you really need to have that love and that soul and that heart into it. Otherwise, you know, what's the point of doing it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So after, after you get that, that groundwork from, from, from grandma and she set you off, what was your next, what was your next journey? How, how did you get into culinary school? How did you, did you get in the first attempt? Did you, you know? So, so I went to college for graphic design uh, originally because I love computers. I love designing things. And that's why I love social media. Um, my YouTube channel, I produce my own videos on there now, you know, they're not Hollywood quality, but they are great. I, they're fantastic. <laughs> they're great. Thank you. Um, so I got into that first and I was about a year and a half into graphic design and I was still working in restaurants and I'm like, I just, it just didn't feel right. So I went to culinary school at Kendall college and I started working at a restaurant. And when I was in school, I was working at a restaurant at night, a bar late night and a bakery super early in the morning. And then I would go to school in the middle of the day. So I was sleeping three hours a night. Um, but I really wanted to experience and understand what path I wanted to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and the restaurant I was working at was a small mom and pop restaurant, amazing people in LaGrange. It was called Maison at the time. Uh, it was this husband and wife that were both the chefs there. And then when I graduated culinary school, I ended up being uh, hired as the sous chef at Spiaggia restaurant, which was the only four star Italian restaurant in Chicago at the time. And um, that just took it to a whole new level, you know, seeing things flown in from Italy daily and making pastas from scratch and working with products I never would have been able to work with. Um, and from there, uh, I went to go open four restaurants for Rick Tremonto in Wheeling. Um, I worked as a chef and consultant for Portillo's. I opened Volari in Oakbrook. I worked at Rosebud and became the director of culinary operations there uh, and then landed in clubs. So I kind of had a really crazy journey, but I'm so young in terms of where I've been because I started so young. You know, I didn't wait to start working. I went right at it when I was in school. I've always been working. So when I graduated school, I was able to come into an early management role when other people graduate school and they go in as a line cook or a prep cook. You know, um, you got to drive. You got to do what, what, what you want and you got to push for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So based on what you described in your journey, it seems like you you've mastered and are continuing to master the culinary um the chicago culinary scene so can you what does that look like from from someone from the outside looking in can you tell us what the chicago culinary scene looks like how has it changed where you think it's going sure i mean i'll tell you the first thing i will say is if you think you mastered anything you're you're an idiot (laughs) that's what i always tell people um no, but there's the Chicago culinary scene is so cool and so diverse because if you look at it, you know, all the most of the top chefs in the city and I, we came up together. We were friends. We hang out. We know each other. We've known each other for a long time. We send silly text messages to each other, all that kind of stuff. Um, we've all taken our beatings from the same chefs, you know, growing into this. There's a general um, in, in the more upper, what better known restaurants in Chicago, there's a general Mediterranean theme that kind of blankets over it, kind of borders along the Italian, Greek, and French uh, influences. And the 
the chefs here just take such an artisanal route now. And it's such a difference from what it used to be where, you know, you look at Chicago 20 years ago and it was Everest and all these upscale French restaurants. And, you know, you had a few outliers that were just unbelievable, but like heaven on seven, but they weren't really what was driving the reputation, but there also wasn't as big of a reputation in Chicago. Then guys come in and start, you know, curing their own meats and making their own breads and butchering whole animals and preserving things and pickling. And you start to see this whole shift and then it starts to bleed into the mixology side. And, you know, it's become a group of chefs that are doing it because they're having fun. Oh. And that's such a big thing. And, and, you know, as operators, we have to make money. And, you know, I think social media helps us do that in terms of how we market ourselves for free, essentially. Um, but these guys are, you know, they're, they're coming up with new things. They're changing things because they want to, they're having great ideas. And when you talk to them about, it, they're so excited about it. Like, dude, I just made a pistachio butter. It was unbelievable. And you're like, Oh my God, what'd you put it with? And you start having these conversations and organically you all kind of grow together. You know, we'll, we'll throw science things off each other, chemical reactions. Like, Hey, I just did a dough and I let the flour and water sit for an hour before I added the yeast and it changed the entire game of it. Like, Oh, let me try that. They apply it to something they do. So we just keep, growing off each other and building awesome awesome yeah, it's, it's, go ahead go ahead oh it's great it's fantastic so it sounds like there is a there is a community it, um, it is yeah. and you know uh over the winter um one of the probably one of the best known chefs in the country he had uh well one of the chefs here had a big anniversary party for his restaurant it was like a 30-year anniversary and um one of the chefs after the parties, so there were a lot of us there, had all the chefs, like a little industry party at his restaurant in the basement. And his staff just put food out in pans on the, in the cooking pans out on the table. And we ate and we, you know, all kind of got together. And it was like probably the coolest underground culinary gathering in the country. I mean, it was the, the nice. people that were there were just the, the titans of Chicago in terms of, not in terms of money, but in terms of culinary skill and, and reputation and, we just laughed and had a great time and, and just hung out. It was, it was amazing. Wow. All right. All right. So um, you launched, you, you, you wrote a book called Anybody's Guide to Italian Cooking. Um, what's the, what was the inspiration behind that? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the book's title is Chibo, Anybody's Guide to Italian Cooking. And Chibo is the Italian word for food. Um, I'm a cookbook junkie. I have always loved them. And, you know, I have a huge obnoxious collection of cookbooks. Um, but I, you know, it's, it's kind of like my easy read. I'll flip through and look at pictures, pull inspirations. So I always wanted to write one and I had helped a few chefs write some books. And, uh, one of them, a pretty well-known chef, I helped him write his cookbook. And the deal was, you know, the spoken deal was, Hey, I'll put you in the acknowledgements. It'll help you, you know, get a publisher. And then when I stopped working for the chef, the name didn't end up in the book. So it made it a little more difficult. So I said, you know what? I still want to write a book. And if I can't get a publisher, and this was during the, the recession in 2007, I'm like, if I, if I can't get a publisher, well, I'm going to do it myself. So I self-published and I created my own book. I did my own photography. Um, I found a publishing house that ended up costing me a lot of money and I didn't make the ROI back, but that wasn't the point of it. The point of it was I always wanted a cookbook and I always wanted to do it. So I did it and I buckled down. I did the hard work. I did, you know, I had a friend of mine uh, help me edit a little bit, but other than that, it was, you know, did all the recipe testing, every piece of it. And it goes back to that whole, 
you know, if you want it, you got to work for it. And um, that was the goal. And it's been great. I've sold a ton of copies. And because I went the self-publishing route, you make so little money on it. <laughs> it's like something like 86 cents a book. So when you think about it, it's not um, sometimes depending on where it sells, it's like 16 cents a book. But that wasn't the goal. It wasn't about, you know, getting rich on a book. It was about mm-hmm. doing something that I set my mind out to do. And, and I did it. Well, well, so far from what you've told me about yourself, uh, the fact that you started when you're in college, you had three jobs, you wanted to write a book, you did it for other people, they didn't pay you back, they, they didn't re- reciprocate back with you, and you still went for it. Um, it, tell, it, it says a lot about your, your character, who you are, um, you're a go-getter, uh, you're living, you know, you want to live that, you want to live that dream now. Don't postpone it. You know, some of your classmates that went to the same college, they did, they just went to college. You were like <laughs> living it simultaneously and that just pushed you ahead of everybody else. So that's, you know, it's, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's all just a mental state. It is. And I'm not one to wait and have things handed to me. I don't think that the world really truly operates like that. Um, I think that just like you with this podcast, you wanted to do one, you're doing it, you know, and it's, there is no easy way. You can't be successful riding on easy street. You're going to take some bumpy roads. You're going to go through some big high hills and you're going to have be in some deep water. And sometimes you're going to feel like you're drowning. And, and even when I was the executive chef at one restaurant, I was working as a morning cook at another restaurant because I wanted to learn something else. And the owner of the restaurant where I was the exec chef was like, yeah, go ahead. So I went and worked for this other chef who taught me how to make sauces. And he was one of the top sauce chefs in Chicago. And I went and worked for free for him. For months wow. um and i've had some setbacks you know i just like I, m- most people you know I've, I've had panic attacks in the past i right now i actually have bell's palsy from stress <laughs> that's why i'm talking out of the side of my mouth um it's crazy how how it catches up to you so you have to find that balance too because as much as i've driven and driven and driven now i actually have to focus too on balance and yeah. that's uh a much harder lesson for someone like me to learn. Mm, mm. Very, very important. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that because um, the, the go-getters, the, 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 the rule breakers, the achievers amongst us, we go forward, you know, mm-hmm. and we keep launching forward and we keep, you know, gaining ground. And it's very important, like you mentioned, to have that balance and say, Hey, I need to be able to take care of myself as much as I want to create and, you know, and create this experience for the community at large and having that balance to say, hey, um, I need to take care of myself. I need to, I, I, I need to rest. I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to eat well. You know, if, during this lockdown that we're all at home right now, eating well may not, <laughs> maybe <laughs> may be a challenge of working out. I, I, you know, I, when it was warm outside, I'll go for a walk right now. I play Nintendo tennis at home just to stay fit. Said, yeah, <laughs> you do what you can. And I think that, you know, looking out and thinking outside the box is important. I spent most of my life studying great chefs. But when I when I went to leadership and work ethic, I spent most of my life studying a different group of people. You know, I read books on management. I, I studied Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and these people that, you know, it's nowhere near anything to do with my field. But managing people and managing yourself and having a drive that is universal across every industry. 
-hmm. you know, and I've had some terrible bosses and I always tell people I've learned more from my bad bosses about what not to do and how (laughs) not to treat people than I have from my great bosses. That is so true. Everything's a lesson. And, you know, now it's, it's finding the other balance because with this pandemic, I mean, we've been hit with so much stress and so much pressure and, I mean, we just got announced yesterday we're shutting down again the city uh, yeah. for the restaurants and things. And it's like, how do you how do you balance that? You know, reinventing constantly and innovating and, and trying to preserve your staff, but knowing that you can't to a certain point and knowing the effect that that has on people. I mean, it's just it's it's terrible right now. Hmm. Well, since we since we we we're hitting on the pandemic question <laughs> here. Um Prior to let's let pre-pandemic, let's talk about what your projections were looking at for 2020, sure. and with the cycle that we've had with you know Governor Prescott closing and you know getting us back to level three on Friday, you know what are what you know you mentioned a little bit of what the impact has been for you. I could imagine what the impact has been for the golf resort uh, resorts uh, golf clubs as well. But what do you think the the outcome will look like post pandemic as well? So it's if we were to actually take the pandemic and stop it right now and go, okay, pandemic's over, everyone can get back to normal. What you're gonna see is an entire surge of restaurants in terms of making profits and being successful because we've all been forced to think differently, innovate, and, and come up with new ways to, to service our guests. You know, restaurants have never done delivery or doing delivery. Chefs are doing meal kits, all sorts of things. So when we open back up and we actually have full dining rooms too, a lot of these programs are going to stay because we know what we could do and how we could push because we've been forced to. You know, the other thing it did, um, this pandemic in a very twisted state of mind uh, was a bit of a blessing for certain people because a lot of us too, you know, we younger generation, a lot of people didn't come up working the way I did. And even I didn't end up working the way that, you know, my father's generation did, where it's really taking us and, and pushing us to a point where we have to work as operators and owners. And, you know, not even a year and a half ago, if you had a big name, someone was throwing $5 million behind you to open a restaurant. And it's like, that's not how you earn it. That's not how you work. And God bless you if you get it. But now I'm looking at, you know, one friend of mine who he's the owner of a restaurant. It's a top rated restaurant. Um, and he is delivering food all over Naperville, the Western suburbs himself, just to keep his restaurant afloat and to make sure that, you know, his customers are satisfied. That is the old school mentality. You walk in and you see one of the biggest name chefs in Chicago on the line, actually cooking with his guys, not just standing at an expediting station, looking at dishes. Yeah. Um you know, I'm washing dishes with my guys. I'm packing. We have a grocery program. Now. I'm packing groceries. I'm, you know, doing everything I can to be part of the team and support my team because this isn't easy. Everyone's working thinner, less people around. We're working harder. And I think a lot of the industry is now rebooting to a sense of old school mentality of ownership. And even when we come back, that old school mentality of customer service of building relationships and really connecting with people. That I think is what's going to excel us to a whole new level and having all these additional things, you know, um, meat packages and you can get your steaks from this place. And I mean, from us, you could buy toilet paper and hand sanitizer if you want to. I mean, why would we stop that? Yeah, it's a great service. And now we're set up to do it. We should continue it. 
Awesome. Awesome. So I think in the end, you know, it's going to be a lot stronger. It's just going to be a very rough road to get there. And hopefully, hopefully we all could hold on until we get to that point. Yeah, that's a very, I, I know, I know the, the, the size of the, of the restaurant and uh, size of the restaurant industry in Chicago, would you, would you say has been, has dropped like 30%, 50%? You know, I don't even know the number on it because they're closing left and right every day. I do think that a lot of people now too, though, that have, you know, been on the fence or just done restaurants because they were a job, I think are not going to come back. Gotcha. You know, if you take a guy that has been, you know, sweating in a kitchen for 10 years and that's all he's ever done and known, you know, meaning like a line cook, and now he's been forced to leave the restaurant and he goes, finds a job in construction. He's working nine to five Monday through Friday, making the same, if not more money. Well, why would he come back to it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think it's going to do that too. I think it's going to weed out a lot of the people that were on the fence and leave truly passionate people to come back to it, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Do, do, do you think, so you, we've talked about the, 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 the speed at which restaurants would come back if we stopped the pandemic today. How about the, the, the guests? Do you think they would be that quick to want to come back into the space? Um, what's your thoughts on that? So I think that if everyone's vaccinated, when we get to that point, I do think people will be more comfortable. I think people will be tense for years. Um, I think they'll be on edge for years. I think that's a rel- like um, unavoidable because you're going to have some PTSD from this. We've been beaten on for eight months, whether you're in a restaurant or I mean, you're, you're, I remember in the beginning I had to go to work, you know, because the, the club, you know, I am essential here. So I remember standing in a parking lot in a parking garage wearing gloves to open the door and hand sanitizing. Anytime I came close to anything, showering and t- changing my clothes the second I got home constantly uncomfortable and terrified and people are still living like that to a point you know even though we're learning how to manage it better so it's going to take the guests some time but there's also a lot of missed things that people need to get back to celebrating i mean every wedding we've had here postponed so if things open up next year we're going to have two weddings a week for the entire year you know (laughs) which is insane um but it's also great because we'll be able to catch up but um, I think it's going to definitely take people some time to get comfortable. I do think that a lot of people are also looking at it in the sense of, look, we're adults. We know how, you know, we know not to skydive without a parachute. We know not to jump on train tracks. We know, we know how not to get hurt. We know how to wash our hands and distance and be intelligent. Now there's the other part of the population that doesn't, you know, and um, both are, both are right and both are wrong. <laughs> if you would, uh, I'm not here to judge anyone, but you know, it's, I think that in general, people are smart. People are smarter than I think they're giving credit for and people want to do the right thing and protect other people. So once we get through this, I think that they're going to, they're going to bounce back, you know, and it'll be a little uncomfortable at first, but hopefully, you know, once we get some outdoor fest going and banquets allowed again and things like that, it'll bring some spirit back to the city. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I keep telling my my wife that we spend 2018, 2020 indoors, 2021, you'd be lucky to be to find anyone at home. Mm-hmm. They'll just be abandoned homes. Cops will be driving around and like somebody left their front door open, left, left January, left right. March 2nd, never came. Back. <laughs> right. They're leaving and traveling. And that's the other thing. I mean, people are itching to get out of here and they can't. Yeah. Um, like I wanted to to go visit some family in Arizona, but if I do, I come back. I have to I have to avoid work for two weeks. I can't do that. That's that's not feasible. 
Yeah. Um, even going, I wanted to go to Kohler. It's not possible. It just, just to get away, you know? Um, so we've ended up creating a little quarantine community in our neighborhood, um, our little bubble. And it's about 10 families. There's about 25 kids across all the families and all the families quarantined together. So we were able to give our kids a somewhat normal summer. And we went to the extreme, like we would rent bounce houses and put them in the backyard. We would do all sorts of crazy things, big cookouts and whatever we could. And it was just us. It was just our quarantined bubble. And thankfully we had that. So we were able to at least give the kids a little bit normal of an experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we created a school for them um, with all the kids on the block and hired a teacher. So they're still in a classroom, but within our little bubble, it's, and they're still using the school curriculum, but it's, it's crazy how we've adjusted. It's impressive. Yes. Yes. It's, that's um, some amazing pivoting and strategies that you've built just to, to keep some normalcy. Yeah. Outside, you know, inside and, you know, everything crazy is going on outside, but we're going to create this bubble that allows us to do a couple of things, which I wish I live out in Frankfurt, you know, I'm by Orland park and we moved here two years ago and I'm like, I'm still trying to get to know my neighbors and stuff like that. And a lot of my, 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 the people I know are in Toronto. I'm from, I'm, I'm Canadian, you know, oh, so, cool. you know, so it's like, if I was in Toronto, it'd be like the same kind of situation. Like you have, I'll be able to, we'll be able to create these bubbles and stuff like that. Right. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, I got four kids under six, so I had no choice but to. Oh my! <laughs> I got I got one, and that's just a handful. He's oh my six. He's always busy, and it's like okay, I could tell when he wants to burn energy because he just starts running around, <laughs> like that. No one's chasing him; it just starts running. Around. Oh, I wish I had that energy. <laughs> Crazy. In 2019. You, 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 you got the role as the executive chef of the Union League um, Club. Um, how did you get there? How's that experience been for you? So, so it's kind of funny. It's actually really funny. Um, I came here to the Union League Club in 2015 for a work retreat with Medina Country Club. And I walked in the doors here and I looked around and I looked at my GM at the time and I said, someday I'm going to be the chef here. And he, he's like, it's like, I believe it. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to be the chef here. So I told the chef here at the time, I told the GM here at the time. <laughs> um, and it was just a long goal. And in 2019, the job opened up and my boss at Medina and I, we kind of just met in the hallway and he looks at me, he goes, are you coming to tell me what I think? I said, are you coming to tell me? He's like, yeah, the job, job's open. I'm like, should we do it? He's like, let's go for it. You've been, you know, you've been dreaming of this. And, and I loved Medina. I mean, I built anything and everything you can imagine at Medina, a chicken coop, a bee colony, maple syrup farm, an organic farm, barbecue program. I mean, unbelievable. Um, but this was my goal and kind of my long-term goal. And so, you know, he supported me completely with it. I went through a vigorous interview process and tasting and putting portfolios together and this and that and did, I mean, insane amounts of research. So when I walked into this club, um, I requested financials to audit them before my meeting. I mean, everything. When I walked into this club for the interview, I couldn't have been more ready. Um, I knew about this club, everything that an outsider could possibly know. And when I started talking to them, I learned that, you know, that was important. But what was really important was being a good person. And I'm like, wow, 
you know, I mean, obviously the operational skills, because this is a massive, I mean, we do a million dollars a month in sales. I mean, it's ten, tens of thousands of people a week. Um, but they were really looking for that person that could culturally kind of adjust, you know, the kitchen, you know, and bring it a little more to uh, today's management style and today's personalities and things like that. And that is like right in my wheelhouse because I'm, you can't tell now, but I am all smiles. I mean, I smile when I'm angry. I smile when I'm happy. I smile when I'm sad. Like that's you know, like, like you, I mean, it's just, it makes sense to lead from behind and to push people from behind and to actually, I'd rather, you know, push someone who's drowning from underneath the water than reach my hand in and try and pull them out. Like that's just, that's always been me. Um, so when I uh, went through the first interview, I couldn't have been more nervous. When did the tasting couldn't have been more nervous. And I don't get nervous by things. Um, but I knew that if, if I didn't jump this job, I'm the fifth chef this uh, club has ever had. And this club's over a hundred years old. So to show you the kind of tenure here, um, I knew if I didn't get on this round, I probably would be too old the next time it came around. Gotcha. Um, so uh, did everything over and over. And then uh, one day I got a call and it was from HR and the food and beverage director. And he, they're like, hey, you know, we'd like to extend an offer to you. Like, amazing. <laughs> so um, I literally left work because I was pretty much done for the day. Stopped at a, at a liquor store, picked up a super high-end bottle of bourbon, Nice. called my neighbor over. We poured a drink. I didn't tell him what was going on. And I literally sat there in silent celebration for the entire night. Just couldn't have been happier. But I didn't want to say anything because, A, I hadn't talked to my wife about, you know, getting the offer because it was she was already in bed. Um, and B, I just I wanted to make sure I was making the right decision. And once I actually sat back and because leaving Medina meant leaving a lot. It meant leaving my team of seven years, which which means more to me than anything. Um, it meant leaving all these amazing programs I built. But then I started to think it over and it's like, this is the next step. This is growing for my family. It's growing for me. And just because I built something great there doesn't mean I can't build something even better here. Absolutely. And um, once I kind of looked at it with a clear head, which I knew I wanted it, but there's often times when the carrot's dangling in front of you, you don't see that maybe that's not the carrot you should eat. Um, <laughs> but I really, you know, thought it through and really approached it with a clear head and said, no, this is, this is it. And I mean, I couldn't be happier than I did that I did it. And I mean, with everything going on, of course, it's the worst time to be in this industry, but this is, this is home now. And this is what I wanted. And this is where I wanted to be. Awesome. Awesome. And when you told your wife, what was her? her oh, she was so excited because she knew how hard I worked for it. I mean, it was, I had said for several years, I didn't apply to any other job. It wasn't like I was looking for a job. This was the job I was waiting for. And um, had this job, had this not worked out, I'd still be at Medina and I'd probably be there for another 10 years. I mean, it's, it was either this or nothing What was really what it was. And, uh, or this, or I shouldn't say nothing, but this or stay at Medina. And um, again, like I said, it would have been at least 10 years before this job opened up again. Wow. The last guy before me was here for 26 years. 26? Mm-hmm. I said, out of, the, club, the club's over, what's the club? I think it's 130 years old, and there's been five chefs. Wow. That's the kind of tenure here. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, your, your story is so inspiring, and I'm, 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 I'm super excited that we're able to connect because... <clears throat> I truly believe that the people that will hear this 
who are thinking of their next move, who are a lot younger, who are thinking of getting into the, the, the industry, they're going to get be inspired that, you know, this is someone that started young. This is someone that did not apply to any other job, had a dream job. You know, it, it's, it's one thing to apply to a dozen of places and you land in one. That's not your dream job. You're just looking for a job. Right. But when you say I was, I, I came, I walked into a space, I looked around, and I said, I'm going to be a chef here. And you told them, you actually declared it with your mouth. You told them, <laughs> which is, that's like a, you know, you know, you say it out there, you know, that's why. Like Babe Ruth calling his shot. Exactly. You know, <laughs> that, that's going in. That is going in, you know. So um, that in itself says a lot about your, 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 the, the strength of your, your, your thought process. Um, knowing what you go after, what you want to go after, which you mentioned. And the fact that you only apply to one is is very powerful because you corrected yourself you said it's not all or nothing you could have gone back to where you were but that was the place you wanted to go to and you know i mean my my father always had a saying and it was it was one i honestly live my life by and it's if the mind believes it the body achieves it and he used to say that all the time to me and um it really it really sticks with me because it's if if you put your mind to it your body will do the work and you got to do the work. I mean, even like I go back to the YouTube channel, I have never filmed anything myself. I've never edited a video, but I was determined to do this to find another way to help people learn how to cook during the pandemic. And it was, I did the work. I studied, I watched the YouTube videos. I tried different softwares out at, you know, and now it's like, again, like I said, it's not Hollywood production quality, but it, they're good videos. They're shot well. Um, the information is definitely there that you need for the cooking to help you actually learn what you need to do and seeing the steps. And it's just another step of, you know, you got to just do it. You have to, if you're going to make a commitment, you yeah. just got to turn the stove on. You know, you got, you got to light the fryer. You, you can't, you can't just talk about doing it. You have to actually do the research ahead of time and then jump in and you have to jump in and be ready to drown. If you're, if you're willing to risk failure, you'll achieve success. But if you're afraid of failure, you're just going to be floating forever. Yes. yes. And I failed plenty of times. I, I'll tell you, I mean, I, my first videos were terrible. My first menus, I look back at them, they were disgusting. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure 10 years from now, I'll look back and be like, what the hell was I thinking doing it like that? But that's part of innovating and developing yeah. and growing. Yes, 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 yes. It's, it's, Zig Ziglar says this, then he goes, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. That's amen. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, it's, if, I have, um, on my wall here, my first, um, management job was at Spiaggia and the, was the CEO at the time gave a talk to the managers and I still have the notes from it and I have it, I keep it on the wall in my office. And it's a, a, a kid's lesson. Well, it's a, it's a book that was called Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And it was amazing to see, like, I read all these things. And it's like lessons that a kindergarten learns about sharing and, you know, be kind and take a nap and all those kind of things. And it's like everything in there is what drives great leadership and great operation. Yeah. And I just kind of live off it. It's, um, it's incredible from a children's, you know, story, it, it, but it's, it's so funny where, where you find inspiration from. You have to look on the outside to find it. Yeah. 
Because yeah. if someone's chasing me in my career, they're never going to make their own. That is true. That is true. You, you got to I mean, go ahead. What goes on in this head yeah. is not normal. It's, you know, <laughs> it, it's I have, you know, I have things firing every different direction and pulling inspiration from all over and thinking differently. And you can't, you can't try and duplicate it. You can pull little strengths from it and find little ideas. But if I, if, if I tried to be the guy I looked up to, I would never be that. And I would fail. I'm just trying to be me. Awesome. Yeah. You got, you got to, you got to, you got to run your race, stay in your lane. Also, obviously grab inspiration from, like Mm -hmm. you said, from around you, but be, be, be your best self. That's it. You know, be your best self. And I'm, I'm doing the same thing from here. You know, I have city spoon. I started thinking, how can I, how can I get to know a lot more? I told you I'm from Toronto. So how do I get to know a lot more about Chicago and the culinary scene and the people that are doing stuff? And I started thinking, Hey, let's, let's start a podcast. Let's call it fired up and start talking to restaurant owners, chefs, anything in between, and just get to understand what, how they got there, what their journey is like, get to understand the culinary layout of Chicago, you know? And like you said, I just, I just started. I just started and I, (laughs) I just got to press record. And that's it. And that's, that's it. Press record and start talking. And, um, I mean, you're going to have mess ups. I've had, I've done pot, the podcast thing and I've had times where I've done a whole interview and forgotten to press record. I mean, it, <laughs> it, I did a, a video a few weeks ago and like at the end of the video, when I threw it to edit, I realized that the camera turned off. Oh, I'm like, oh my goodness. And it's like, <laughs> it's going to happen. You just got to laugh about it. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. You, know, you burn yourself. You cut yourself. You stub your toe. I mean, it's all just funny stuff. And if you can laugh about it, you're going to, enjoy messing up more it's okay to enjoy it like screwing up it's all right don't take it too serious yeah yeah i like that i like that i like that chef michael i want to be so respectful for your of your time i want to say thank you thank thank you you. for making this time if you know once we could all my family and i could come out i play a little bit of golf I'm from Toronto, so if you want to play a little bit of hockey, let me know. We could do. <laughs> could do you'd, you'd beat me in both. <laughs> you know, but um, I guess is there anything else you'd like to share or raise awareness on um, before we wrap up? You know, if um, if you could take a look at the uh, Illinois Employee Restaurant Relief Fund, uh, it's a really amazing program put together by the Illinois Restaurant Association to help workers that have been displaced by the pandemic. And I know every industry is suffering. Um, but I always tell people, these are, these are the, the men and women who have been serving us for so long. And we don't really realize how, how special people they are. Yeah. So if you could, you know, check it out, do anything you could to support it would be great. Um, honestly, even $5 makes a difference because if enough people give it, it goes a very long way. So, um, yeah, I mean it's it's terrible out there right now, and a lot of people are going through hard times. Wow! Um, you can also give to the Mike Ponzio Mercedes Fund. <laughs> um. <laughs> Not a problem. What, I, what kind of Mercedes are we talking about here? Well, it depends on how much we get. <laughs> I like it. Like you, you, you've you've lived, and you're continuing to live the life. There's no reason why you should not be a partaker of the best that life has to offer. No, you know what? I have the best life has to offer. I got a loving wife. I got four kids. I got a home. I, I got everything I need, honestly. 
I got a job with people, with people I care about. I mean, what more could you ask for? Well, you mentioned the Mercedes. You know, the the, <laughs> the, the slogan for Mercedes is all or nothing. So I was yeah. like, you're going for it. Go for it. <laughs> you know, if Mercedes wants a spokesman, I'll do it. I'm just saying. Nice, nice, nice. That's Michael Ponzio, Executive Chef of the Union League Club of Chicago. Thank you so much for listening to the show this month. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also write to us at podcast at cityspoon.com or follow us on Instagram, that's at cityspoon. I'm Dapper Kalawale, and you've been listening to Fired Up by Cityspoon.